Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. And welcome to another episode of Book Club. Today, we have Ian Mills of Transform Performance International, who is one of the co-authors of The Salesperson Secret Code, which we've been talking about for the last few weeks, subtitled The Belief Systems That Distinguish Winners. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. You all right? I'm absolutely fine, thank you. Good. Nice and sunny where you are today? Well, um... Uh, yes and no. Uh, it was tipping down with rain about five minutes ago, and then the sun came out. So I'm fully expecting uh, rain, snow, um, and all sorts of... Uh, Four seasons in one day. Uh, so Exactly. Ian, we've been talking about Salesperson Secret Code for the last few weeks. So our, our listeners and anybody that watches the show, perhaps on YouTube, they know all about it. I think what might be useful, and one of the things that's been incredibly useful for us is every time we do a book, Mike and I leap to conclusions that we then find out are deeply wrong by the time we actually get the author on the show. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes one of the first things that we found really useful now that we're getting in the swing of book uh, discussion, 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 author, is sometimes just getting the author to give us a little bit of background. For example, if you could give us a little bit of background around Transform transform performance international and what they're about and what what you're doing in that business which will perhaps give us some context and a segue into talking about the book today okay so um i've been running that company now for about 20 years um it started off life as transform people international limited um so what we did um i think it was about three years ago now we repositioned it as transform performance for the very simple reason that the language of executives is about performance not people it's a it's a subtle thing uh we continue to do what we've always done so um that business has worked globally, uh, probably in about 70 countries now, famous name organizations, helping them to perform better, uh, predominantly through people um, in terms of their mindsets, their attitudes, their beliefs, their skills, their processes, frankly, whatever is required to up their game. Right, cool. And give us an example of some of the sort of projects you get involved in as a business. Um, Okay, so uh, we did a major project with Deloitte where we helped the partners to um, become more distinctive in the eyes of their customers in a very competitive world. Um, So if your listeners understand that world, um, customers see Deloitte and PwC and E&Y and KPMG is very similar, Uh, similar value proposition, similar pricing, um, similar... similar sort of gender, uh, similar background of, uh, of salesperson and partner. Um, so we help them to engage and connect with 
executives in buying organizations in a fundamentally different way so they were seen as distinctive that's the kind of work that we've done um probably another good example would be with lloyd's banking group where we helped their commercial sellers become trusted partners rather than product sellers um so at a very simple level that was about moving them from a product selling model to a consultative selling uh model um which was rooted in a mindset shift less uh, so from a skill perspective because actually they already had the skills they needed the mindset and belief that they could do actually what customers really wanted so that's the kind of things that we do right cool and so the book where did it come from so um it's my second book um or the second book i co-authored the first one was called 100 big ideas to help you succeed and um this book came from, uh, I guess, an unusual source. I'm part of a group called the Entrepreneurs Exchange based out of London. And um, I used to attend, I'm I'm winding the clock back about four years ago now, I used to attend um, entrepreneurial events, um, dinners in uh, private clubs with really interesting people. And I used to listen to the successful entrepreneurs presenting what they'd achieved and how they achieved it. And I really loved it, but actually they weren't really in my target market. So I'd get on the train back to sleepy uh, Wiltshire and think, well, hold on a minute. I really enjoy this. I get value out of it, um, but I'm not really networking with the right people. So why don't I try and bottle what I hear um, from the entrepreneurs who present um, and make money off the back of it? It's as, crude, it's as crude as that. So I came up with a title while I was on a late night train right. called The Entrepreneur's, Entrepreneur's Secret Code. And it became evident very quickly that we should make it more relevant to our business, given the fact that we coach many thousands of people to become better salespeople. And actually, if you think about it, everybody sells, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a CFO, whether you're a CEO, whether you have sales in your, uh, in your job titles. We felt that it would have great uh, appeal so so we flipped it to the salesperson secret code and in fact um just to wind the clock forward we've submitted the manuscript for the leader's secret code so we're moving forward with the next uh you know with the next iteration so that was the source of it um and just just a little bit more insight um you know you will have read many sales books many business books generally they focus on skills behaviors uh, processes technology there's very little written about the mindset that causes people to behave in the way in which they uh, behave so there's some Mm. great stuff out there um, uh, uh, much of which uh, I read, I enjoy, I get value from it. But we wanted to do something that was fundamentally different, and um, hence the salesperson secret code. Great. Okay. So Mike and I have had an interesting few weeks reading the book. Um, interesting in as much as we absolutely love the fundamental premise. Yeah. We're really fond of it, aren't we? Yeah. I mean. You know, Jonathan and I were talking before we sat down with you and Johnny said to me, he said, come on, Mike, what do you make of the book? He said, uh, you know, before we meet Ian online, you know, just me and you talking to him, what do you reckon? And I said to Jonathan, I said, it was nothing I wouldn't say, you know, out there and I've not on said, the air. which is the actual, I've got 
pluses and minuses that I like about it that therefore I want to ask you about, if I may. So yeah. the model that exists in each chapter, for those people listening, typically, you know, there's eight or nine chapters, but a lot of the chapters are dedicated to the characteristic that we're talking about. So one of the characteristics, um, you know, might be motivation or whatever it might be, and you've yeah. created this model in which is having a destination belief and two journey beliefs, and then having a yeah. balance between those two different parts. I like that as a model. Where did that come from? Um, so it was initiated from the research. Um, so the finders of the research drove us towards those five destination beliefs. Uh, clearly, there are more beliefs that will be held by salespeople and indeed top salespeople. Um, like anything in life, you don't want to overdo it. You don't want to try and uh, over-engineer or over-complicate what it is you're trying to uh, share. So we tried to synthesize it down to what we believed were the most common, most typical destination beliefs. Right. Um, I think you'll find we said in the book that every single salesperson that we interviewed uh, referenced those beliefs in a range of different, uh, a different ways. Right. And tell us about the research. Um, so for me, it was a little bit scary. So I've been selling now for uh, well over 40 years. Um, I'm giving my uh, age away right now. <laughs> um, and as I mentioned, I've already written or co-authored one book. And um, uh, many of us think we know what the answer is. Um, so, you know, research is about proving the answer, but Dr. Ben Laker, who's my uh, co-author, Dr. Ben Laker is a professor at Henley Business School. Um, he uh, very early on said, you can't do that. You know, you have to start your research from a blank piece of paper. So, um, okay, in some instances, you may start with some kind of a hypothesis, but we, we, we didn't. Um, we wanted to start from a blank piece of paper that would uncover um, the truth, I guess, is probably the best way of, uh, of, of putting it. So effectively, what we did is we interviewed approximately a thousand people uh, globally um, across different sectors. And we interviewed each of them for between an hour and an hour and a half. Uh, we also invited them to go online and complete two psychometric questionnaires. One was a behavior-centric questionnaire. One was a motivators uh, questionnaire. So we ended up with hundreds of thousands of data points, which um, when analyzed, oh, and I should say, we invited the organizations that participated to provide us with the performance data of the salespeople. So what that meant is that we could analyze the findings against the performance data, which meant that we were able to identify the belief systems of the top performers. And that was, and that was essential or crucial to um to to the research okay okay cool okay and then something that you know we've spoken about it I don't know if you listen to book club um but the idols what icons yeah. icons sorry just talk because yeah. you know i've not been anything other than honest that i don't think that they necessarily uh are a true reflection of what I personally would consider to be an icon, but then... Yeah, Mike and I found the icons hard to live with. Why did okay. you select them? 
Um, so, uh, so look, here's the thing: beauty's in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> All right. Um, so I'm I'm in complete agreement with you. You know, if we, if we, if we got ten of us around a table with our collective experience, we probably would pick different people. So. Um, we selected them um, as a consequence of our network. Um, people would point us to uh, people who had something about them that made them interesting, different or edgy. Uh, we also did some desktop uh, research, which pointed us uh, at certain individuals. I think it would be fair to say that not one of them uh, would suggest that they had a monopoly on wisdom and that they were the perfect model. But we think that every one of them had something to bring to the table that evidenced the research uh, findings. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So there's a lady called Erica Feidner. If right. you uh, do any desktop research on Erica, one of the things that you'll find is a uh, interesting piece of work from Forbes where they claim that Erica is one of the best 10 salespeople of all time. Um, now, again, that's their judgment. Uh, that's their opinion. And in fact, quite a few of the salespeople um, are now dead. So she was one of the only uh, alive ones. So we connected with her and listened to her story and thought she is absolutely fascinating. Right. Um, and she absolutely has some of the attributes that our model suggests a winner would have. One of the other really interesting persons, if you, or one of the interesting icons, if you look at it in a slightly more formal sense, is Louis Jordan at, um, at Deloitte. So when we interviewed him, he was the vice chairman of Deloitte. But as you will know, anyone who is in a partner role in that kind of firm, their their role is income generation. And um, some of the results that he achieved are just absolutely phenomenal. Some of the commercial results that he achieved. And just to listen to him, he has an aura and a way about him that is just truly uh, magical. But again, I don't think he would say he is the perfect salesperson. I'm not sure that that perfect salesman, um, you know, exists. I often say to people, well, actually, let me ask you two the question. Do either of you play golf? I used to play a lot. I play a little bit now. Okay. I swing a club now and then. Okay. So um, you're kind of giving it away. I was going to ask you if you've perfected it. Of course not. And I, I, I kind of, thank you. So, you know, if you've got 100 salespeople in a, in a room and you ask them that question, none of them will have perfected golf. Selling, I believe, is exactly the same thing. Could I just you extend? Know, I don't know anyone, anyone who's perfected it. Could I extend your golf analogy then, please, in that yeah, case? Yeah, sure. So if we take, yeah. for example, the golf analogy, all of the golfers or icons in your book <clears throat> They all feel like they're golfers who play the same golf courses. They all feel they're like they're all, playing Cookridge Hall today. That, that, no, I think they're all big golfers with big backgrounds who've grown up on the yeah. US circuit, yeah. whereas nowhere in here is Lee Westwood, who grew up uh, playing around Lindrick and South Yorkshire. And it surprised me that none of the icons here have worked for smaller companies. How come there is nobody from a small company background in and amongst them? Um. We we wanted to go for big brands, simple as that. So from our target market as a as a company, uh, our target market is big organisations. You know, our clients are, are companies like Fair Deloitte, enough. HP, Cisco Systems, Oracle. We want to appeal to those kind of organisations. 
that yeah that's it's, so it's as simple as that, so really. to be fair i think that's a very important piece of context and as we say in every time we get an author on the show we get context that we don't get in the book yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. And the, con- the context here is you know if you look at at my, mine and Michael's target market, we deal with quite an interesting variety of organisations. But a lot of the clients that we work with... Well, they're sub-100 are, million, aren't they? Yeah, often sub-100 million yep. pound organisations okay. that are VC-backed, yep. fast-growing, because that's where recruitment money is flying around um, and yeah, where no, we can influence no. the outcome of those deals. So we see yep. a very different kind of icon to the kind you see. Mm. Mm. Oh, no, I get that. And, um, you know... It, 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 <laughs> Look, let's not over-engineer it. No. Uh, we've got some interesting people. They're broadly in our target market, um, and therefore we felt they would appeal to the kind of people that we engage with. That's the essence of it. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Some of, w- one of the things that's been really interesting is, and Mike and I have talked about this a lot whilst we've been reading through the book together and, in, and talking about the book, is in many respects, Mike and I have our own very informal research here that we've never really sat down and quantified based on interviewing thousands and thousands of salespeople sure. over, yeah. you know, 40 years between us. Um, and what was interesting was the, where the crossover points were. So, for example, you know, in Chapter 2 in Fulfillment, you talked about, and this was a fascinating thing for Michael and myself because we have always felt this, you identified a passion in every salesperson who sought the goal of fulfillment through the journey motivator of being better than they ever thought possible. Their yep. passion was not always work-related. Top sellers have yep. private passions. Um, and yep. you talked about this COO of Toshiba is an accomplished cyclist. Phil Benton is sales yep. director. Adidas is a good hockey player. Yep. Mike and I have found so similar, haven't we? Every good person is into something, irrespective yep. of how obscure it is. Or nerdy. Yeah, They've all got yep. a... Th- they've, uh, they've got a thing. And it's a yep. thing that they're really, really either monumentally good at outside of work or monumentally interested in. Whether they're yep. obsessive Arsenal fans, home and away, citing stats dating back 30 <laughs> years, or whether they are ultra-endurance runners, yep. every top performer I tend to work with has a thing. Yeah. Why yeah, do you think absolutely. that is? Well, um, so uh, so if I go back to the research that, that, that um, we conducted, the... The, the really interesting piece is that there's a blend between this fear of failure um, and this, I want to achieve what I never imagined I could uh, achieve. So the top performers had a much greater level of intensity around the, I want to achieve what I never imagined I could achieve. What, what was also interesting is they did have a fear of failure. So those who had no fear of failure or too much fear of failure tended to be poorer performers so it seemed to be a blend um and um i quite often put this as a you know you know, put this across as a cake mix in the sense that there are 10 ingredients frankly we all know what they are but if you want it to taste beautiful you've got to get the mixture just um uh, just right i think that's why my cakes a- don't taste very good <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was kind of uncanny that all of the top uh, top performers had very a very similar level of intensity against against all ten um, of the measures. But I, you know, coming back to your very direct question of why do you think that is, actually, I've no idea. 
Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, may, maybe maybe it's a bit about getting away from what their upbringing was like. So 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 quite often youngsters tend to either follow uh, what their father or mother did, or they escape from what their father or mother did. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 you you see particularly with successful entrepreneurs, you see both examples. So Richard Branson's a great example. He's somebody who had um, a very privileged upbringing. There are many other entrepreneurs who had a really tough upbringing. So 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 I don't think there's necessarily a perfect formula that actually suggests the stage is set for your uh, for your success. But, but I do absolutely agree that the internal driver that causes the people to, to, to go that extra mile um, is where the magic lies. And I think the interesting thing from a, a recruitment point of view in sales is that most salespeople are pretty good at pitching for a job. Most of them now get coaching, um, whether it's offline or online. Most of them practice it. And quite often you will see two people who look equally good. Um, I think the issue is what's going on inside their head that causes one of them to be a top performer and the other yeah. one to be an average performer. And I think what we've uncovered are those inner beliefs that cause one of them to get up early in the morning, um, you know, when it's snowing, when it's difficult, when things are going against them versus the other person who the world is against them. Yeah, it's almost a, it's almost a fixating thing. You know what I was going to it's say? It's a capacity it's, to fixate. I, I, I mean, I don't have any research to base this on. This is just, yeah. you know, as I read it. I think there's two things as to why people do that is, I think people who are successful tend to be obsessives in, in yeah. anything and something yeah. and everything. And the other thing is, I think that people who uh, have an outside interest allow their brains to rest. Yep. Do you know yeah. what I mean? They just get away with it. And all right, running an ultra yeah. marathon probably isn't very relaxing, but it's probably yes. very but it's different. it's not working. Correct. Yeah, it's a different thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's, anyway. It's not sitting behind your laptop. Now, here's an interesting question for me to ask a man who runs yep. a sales, sales a, a performance coaching business. And, yep. and it's, it's, you know, it, it's going to sound a bit loaded. It's not really. It's a genuine question, sure. which yep. is to go back to the fact you've got the destination belief with the two journey beliefs in each of the categories. And most of the time, it's a blend between the two parts. So it might be 20%, 1.8% another, 60%, 1.40% another. Sure. So yep. we interview somebody and we think about fulfillment, which we were just talking about, and we find out that this person's perfect, but they're only, you know, 20% of it is, you know, a fear of failure. And we think, actually, we could do with just training them a little bit to move them along the spectrum. Yeah, I have found with people we have worked with that it's actually very difficult to change the way people act and the way people are and actually yep. to to move people along that spectrum even when you've yeah even may, you've may i expand on that a bit Mike? yeah 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 i think what mike's getting at it was a point we made last week was my own experience as a leader is behaviorally sometimes at maximum if you're for example working on a belief change like that or working on for example a, a journey motivator like that or a journey behavior like that at best, I think you tend to get about a plus or minus 5% shift in any given direction with coaching and support. Yeah. Yep. So surely the message, therefore, is actually about hiring, not managing. 
Okay, so um, so it's a great question, and, and and actually, you know, I think your your point is right on the money. I think the most important thing is to hire the right people in the first place, um, and the reason I say that is I think changing people's attitudes and beliefs um, is far more difficult than changing. Um, skills and processes and methods. Um, so, um, you, you know, you need a really skilled leader who's got the ability to coach and mentor, mentor individuals in, in a, a series of incredibly creative ways to get them to fundamentally change deep-rooted beliefs yeah. that, frankly, quite often they've held for many, uh, many, many years. It is possible um, but but it is, you know, to excuse the similar word, it is a journey. Um, you can give somebody a new skill and they can employ it immediately. You can give somebody a new tool or a process and they can practice it immediately. Getting them to change their attitude or their underlying belief systems can be really, really quite quite difficult but you can do it and you can do it through uh, provocation um, you can do it through uh, knowledge sharing you can do it through experimentation you can appeal to the logic or the emotion and a combination of two um, but it is a it, but it is a, a a journey I mean one of the best examples it's the, you know fairly obvious one Roger Bannister first person ever to run a yeah. four minute mile um, okay um, the, the more interesting question is how many people ran it the year after. Um, it's unknown, but it's certainly more than five. The issue or the question that's far more interesting is why did they run it the year after, not the year before? Because nothing changed in terms of exactly nothing yeah. changed in terms of diet, training. Well, it, equipment. it was widely held that the human heart would explode in a sub four minute mile. Yeah, exactly. So somebody proved it could be done now i will do it so that's a very simple example of how somebody's belief system recalibrated and they upped their game from a performance uh, perspective i think in the world of sales though it's a far more challenging concept and there are there, there are far more elements required to get somebody to uh, attitudinally change the whole way by which they go about yeah. doing what they do I wonder the extent to which culture has an impact on that. I know Michael and I have experienced in, in the years we've been in recruitment, some companies where they've had incredible, and I used the word culture with a prefix of the word cult, yeah. and therefore the impact on belief in a cult. Yeah. Interestingly, I was watching a film about the Manson family last night um, where you know, some of the belief change that he created amongst his followers was immense. Yeah. But Michael and I have worked with some sales environments where they've been cults as much as cultures, haven't they? Well, the sales and guy's gone in one and come out the other three years later, you hardly recognise them. Yeah, they're, uh, they, they they create <laughs> human personality change in some of these companies. Yes. Um, there was yes. one that we dealt with, turn of the millennium, where they the, the, the model was must be 25, must be male, Anglo-Saxon, must be privately educated, must have a 2-1 or above. Well, it could be anyone that, couldn't it? It could be um, CA, PTC, yeah, yeah, QAS, whoever. any of them. And then they used to fly them out to America for this four-month boot camp where they kept them awake for yeah. 20 hours a day. Some of them broke, went mad and got put on the plane home. The ones that didn't came home and were wound into a, a trance-like, cult-like frenzy and went out and absolutely hammered the market with this product. Mm. Mm. Um, and that group of guys, once they all left the cult... Trace them back, they're all doing well, aren't they? They've yeah. all done incredibly well. Okay. Now, 
whether they hired for the initial belief and they held the beliefs They hired of, beliefs and just gave them a bit of fuel. Or did they create belief change with the culture? <laughs> so, so the way you describe that, I would imagine that the leaders of that organisation held some deep-rooted beliefs about the way by which their business would succeed. And what it appears on the face of it is that they would then manage, lead, coach and mentor to that belief uh, set. Um, so, so some salespeople will survive in that kind of environment and some people will absolutely not. No. Um, so you've got to be very careful in who you, in, in, in who you select. And, and sometimes you'll find that um, salespeople will call a leader in that kind of world a control freak, you know, <laughs> because at one, at one level, you know, the, the leader is inviting them to step up to a massive challenge, which most of us are up for. Um, on the other hand, what they then do is put a straitjacket on them and say, I'm going to remove all your creativity and I'm now going to invite you to do what I believe is the correct thing to do. So so the danger with that is that you, you have people who are up up for the fight, um, but then a straitjacket has been put upon them. So for a lot of people, that will stifle them. On the other hand, you know, as you rightly suggest, there are many examples of organisations that have very experienced sales leaders who've been there, done it, and know what the formula to success is. And they want people who are going to follow the predictable success pattern. Yeah. Um, and absolutely, it can work. You know, a classic kind of example would be in the area of cold calling um you know quite often the brighter the person the more creative the person um, the less they'll sell because what they try and do is reinvent the wheel when actually what you want is somebody to follow the well-proven well-trodden path of the past um but the question then becomes how sustainable is that over a long period of a long period of time? Mm. So how do you motivate people, you know, after the first couple of years of doing that? Because as we all know from research is that all of us want more than just uh, money at our bank account. So yeah, how do you, how do you, how do you motivate and energize salespeople to give them a richer experience as well as deliver results? Yeah, it's it. Massively challenging. I'll tell you something that, that, that interested me. You talked in, in the chapter on resilience, I, I thought, yeah. in, in and of itself, and that as a criterion of itself is very interesting. Um, again, Michael and I see a lot of that, don't we, where we see people and we just think, you're not tough enough to be in the game. Um, but what was really interesting was how close work smart and work hard were. Yeah, it is, it is really interesting. Um, so... So quite often you see organizations, in my opinion, will fail because what they do is drive their salespeople simply to work harder in times of in times of challenge and banging the door another 10 times um, if it's locked does not work. You know, the magic is often to find the key to the door. So so so. What, what our research and data said, that the top performing salespeople, when the going gets tough, up their game from an hours and commitment point of view, but they spend a greater level of intensity on finding the key to the door or being more creative being or 
uh, yeah, being cute or savvy or whatever whatever the right terminology is. Um, so it's a combination of things, not one of those things in isolation. Um, but you know, I, I, I thought it was really interesting, and it, it's going to vary slightly by vertical market um, and proposition and, and 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 so on and so forth. Um, but I suspect both of you have seen, you know, the the more creative the individual is when aligned to putting uh, their shoulder to it, uh, they're going to be more successful. Yeah. And, and as you say, sometimes you can sense sometimes when we meet a candidate that they're in an environment that's all about the pressure and the creativity has yeah. gone from them. Yeah. Like somebody's turned the, turned the lights off, isn't it? Well, like, I think the SAS world with the puppy dog sale stifles a lot of creativity actually. Yes. That's yeah. an interesting point because they, it, it Every sale is a puppy dog sale. Yeah, yeah. Actually, how it, it's making a slightly it's, different generation of sales professionals. Lead generated, BDR qualify to an external puppy dog sale. You know, the individual component parts don't necessarily have creativity in them. And even some of these very big enterprise products where... An, uh, oh, look at NetSuite. Yeah. Or, or, well, I was thinking more some of these big enterprise database applications now. Actually, a punter can go online and download the application and toy with it and not even talk to a salesperson for a month. Yes. Yes. And that well, you know, that yeah. does change the creativity element for the salesperson. You know, a, you know, a classic example of of driving the wrong behaviour is um, focusing on number of calls made. And um, I, you know, I personally, a couple of years ago, sat next to a salesperson who called a, a pharmacy store around about lunchtime, and you're sat there listening to <laughs> that call, thinking, "Hold on a minute, you know, the pharmacist is going to have a queue as long as your arm of customers. It's the busiest time in the day, and they're trying to get them on the end of the phone in order to sell to them." Yeah. So. So there's a kind of, I've made my call, I'm working harder, but I have no chance of engaging or, or, or selling. So the smarter person will think about, well, when might that pharmacist have no gatekeeper, no customers? Yep. When will they be relaxed? When do I engage with them at the right time? 8 a.m. Yeah, exactly. Get you to know, work early, call at 8 a.m. And that's yeah. the point about the mix between hard work and being cute. Actually, the yeah. hard work is, do you know what? Maybe I'll get hold of the guy at 8 a.m. before he's opened the store. Yeah, you know, so so the smart salesperson will put in the hours, but maybe they'll take the lunchtime period off. Maybe they'll come in at 7 a.m. in the morning. Maybe they'll stay until 7 p.m. They just find uh, ways of working around the system to get to their, destin uh, their destination. Okay, let's talk about influence, Ian. Yeah. So Mike and I had quite a bit of debate on this one last week, didn't we, between the two of yep. us? And I think that was more about my definition of manipulation, manipulation yeah. uh, so I, i've got a real thing about this and it's it's a, just a personal okay. bee in a personal bonnet yep. which is yep. i find that in a lot of the books we've worked on on book club and a lot of the books we talk about and just generally in the zeitgeist, society in the zeitgeist of our environment people have developed this view that influencing or persuading and changing the mind of a customer mm. isn't it's almost not on um and i'm from a world where i was taught that actually your job as a salesperson is to get a customer to potentially think of doing something they hadn't ordinarily thought of doing or possibly hadn't decided that they wanted to do but get them to a place where actually it seemed like a good idea and they were comfortable with it and Absolutely wrong. um 
I always worry about this. You, you put in inverted commas, and I know I'm nit. I'm being bloody nitpicky here. You know, influence can look a lot like its darker cousin manipulation. So we need to understand the journey motivates support and differentiate it as an ethical element for professional selling. What was fascinating for me was you clearly come from there's a, there's some NLP background in and amongst the authors here, which right. I'll which I'll allude to later. Because the book actually reads like a list of the key presuppositions of neuro-linguistic programming from an NLP practitioner course. Um, but where is this line of manipulation and influence in? So um, it's a matter of opinion, but I think um, this is all about your uh, morals, ethics and values. So I think that's where it starts. So if you think about a salesperson, providing they have the right uh, moral fibre and backbone, then using all of the skills of influence is entirely appropriate. Okay. Um, uh, but I do think it's fair to say that uh, fraudsters will <laughs> use similar techniques. Yep. The difference is that they don't have the right morals, ethics and values. So, so they're the starting from a premise that I am there to manipulate people for my own benefit, not for their benefit. And I think that's where the difference applies. I think the other thing is, if you think about persuasion, persuasion is only one of the techniques of influence. And um, you know, if you ask any audience, do you ever resist a salespeople persuading you? Um, 99 out of 100 cats so, yeah. will put the hat in the air. Um, so even when the value proposition is good, um, sometimes they don't like the way by which they're being persuaded. So I think the issue or the challenge um, for the uh, salespeople is how can they be smart about the way they influence somebody towards a destination? So moving beyond persuasion, using things like reciprocity or commitment or scarcity or um, authoritative uh, uh, techniques to um, to get their customer to the right to the right destination. So I think the challenge is kind of understanding what's going to work best, what mix, what sequence. But you can only really do that at the point at which the customer trusts you. Yeah. So what do you do in order to, to create an environment where the customer trusts you rather than thinks that you're a snake oil salesperson and they're going to do whatever they possibly can to resist even the best value proposition? You've got to write a book, haven't you? Yeah, I've got to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. worry, said the guy who's working on a book. Yeah, you know, and you know, one of the one of the most interesting people uh, we interviewed. I mentioned Erica Feidner earlier. So yeah, was she the Erica piano lady? Sell, no, she's the piano lady. Is she yeah. the piano lady? She's the piano lady. Right. So okay. She, sell, she sells, um, or at her prime. Bearing in mind, we did the interviews three years ago. At her prime, she was selling twenty times the number of pianos that the average Steinway piano seller was selling. But she doesn't even see herself as a salesperson. Um, she sees herself as the piano matchmaker. She sees herself as making uh, a customer's dreams come true. So she's got an ability to move from the product, the features, the persuasion, the reciprocity to getting them to imagine and dream what it is like to have one of the best pianos ever in your home when you invite your friends and family around for a dinner party and you can play beautiful music for them. Um, so you know, the visualization, the dreams, um, and making those come true. Uh, there's such an art to that. Um, and that's how she goes about it. So there's a massive reframe around her identity there. Yeah, absolutely. So you see, yeah. that's that's a it, it, one of the things that I, I have a per, that 
I do feel you missed out on in the book as a yep. as a key motivator is identity. Yeah. And in my own yeah. little uh, very very informal study, albeit that where the sample is pretty significant, is something we find and and as you've already distinguished, we're we're yeah. perhaps aiming at different universes. I find that the candidates that are struggling often don't have a congruent identity as a sales professional. Uh, you know, I think, uh, again, you're right on the money. A, a very a very easy way to do a litmus test just is to go onto LinkedIn and, um, yeah. you know, uh, and have a look at what the strap line is. I because agree. actually what LinkedIn asks you to do is describe what you do, not who you work for and what your job title is. Um, so what's the end result of your activity? So somebody like an Erica will be about, I make your dreams come true through music. It's not... I'm a piano seller from Steinway. So, you know, and just just another real example from some work we did, you, you know, I mentioned the bank we worked with um, from moving from a product selling model to a consultative selling model. The, the, the issue from an identity point of view, if you met one of those people in the bar, would they describe themselves as a bank manager or somebody who is a trusted partner that helps you to build your business? Um, because the way they describe themselves informally will be the way they behave and the way they behave will dictate their success. So some of them will hold on to what they valued in the past rather than what they need to be doing right now to get to where they need to get to. So, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. I think identity is absolutely essential. Yeah, it's a key, quest a key question for me when I'm interviewing is if I met you in a pub and asked you what you do for a living, what would you say? And exactly. it, it, you'd sure hit the floor if you heard a lot of the answers we get. Yeah. And then, yeah. and and the bad ones are nearly always correlated with poor performance. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm absolutely with you on that. And I, I you know, I think you're right. The linkage to performance um, and identity is a really strong one. Okay. And you do mention there's a lot of stuff that's very NLP in the book. Right. Okay. Uh, am I going mad having picked it up? You know, for I think there was one. Uh, here you go. The more flexible I am, the more I can influence. Which, if you if you've got an NLP practitioner manual out now, it would say the person with yep. the most flexibility has the greatest control over the system. Yeah. And I okay. noticed at the start of the book, you did actually have a quote from Sue Knight, yep. who wrote NLP at Work, which is one of my favourite yep. ever business books. And I have had yep. Sue has done some coaching with me over the years. How NLP are you? Um. So. Um uh, both Mark Ridley and myself, Sue Knight was our coach right. uh, for, for a number of years. Um, interestingly, just, um, you know, for your benefit, I mentioned the leader's secret code. Yeah. Uh, one of the icons in the leader's secret code is her son. Really? Uh, who happens to be uh, James Knight, right. who's a, ma a major in the Royal Marines and has a military oh, wow. cross. Wow. So he's a fascinating leader having... Uh, had experience of leading young men who might die during the day, you know, which is a slightly more challenging leadership role than most uh, might I can have. imagine. Yeah. So, so, so just, just again, you may not want to uh, share this, but our, our view around NLP is it's an unregulated uh, market. Um, it's, it's full of the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. Um, you'll find in the large uh, corporates, uh, there are those who would love it and those who really do not like it. So we would never uh, market it, label it. Um, but, you know, beneath the surface, we inevitably would 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 use it. And, you know, as you will know from Sue Knight, she's at the quality end. Yes, yeah, Sue's a the, top, top, uh, top NLP. girl. 
spectrum. She's yeah. she, she's a fantastic facilitator. Really, yeah, and really you can do a coaching yeah. session with Sue, and change will take place, and you won't even know you've just talked to her for an hour. Yeah, yeah and you exactly. won't even know. Yeah, but it's not like she's hypnotising or anything like that. Just her use of clean language. She's yeah. at that a level of accomplishment with it where she can just take you through the process really comfortably. And I think that yeah. for me is the great usage of NLP, not you know, some guy sat in a conference saying, by now you should have realised that this is a great idea. By now you should have realised that, that that's yeah. dirty NLP. Um, yeah, and, I, exactly. and I think there's the distinction, yeah. really. I know you had a number of questions, didn't you, Mike? We sort of covered a lot of them, really. But one of the things okay. that I was meaning to go through was on page 232, you summarise the five different, uh, different journey motivators. So okay. fulfilment, control, resilience, yeah. influence, communication. Loved that graphic, by yeah, the way. Yeah, best graphic in the book, that for yeah. me. And it shows the balance of the journey yep. motivators. So fulfillment, it goes fear versus desire, 38 to 62%. Control, victim versus hero, 22%, 78%. I wondered if there's yep. one that incorporates them all. And if you were to look at them to say, you know, fulfillment, 20%, control, 20%, resilience, 20%, influence, 20%, communication, 20%. That won't be the case. I'm sure there's one of those things that's more important than the others. Is that the case? Well, like, know, is there one overriding one? Hmm. Um. Oh, that's a good question. Not even thought about that one. So, you know, in, the spirit, in the spirit of honesty, I have absolutely no idea. Come um, on, Ian, pick one for us. Um, what I what I can tell you, um, well, okay. So, so this may or may not answer the question, but l let me try and rationalise it a little bit. One of the things that we've done subsequent to writing the book is we built a psychometric instrument that yeah. can assess people against those measures, and it generates a thirty-page, twenty to thirty-page report. And it will align the individuals, you know, and it has to do it this way, the scores of the way in which they answered the question against the uh, the research findings. What we tend to find is the areas where people are most awry is in the area of control. So they're right. far too victim orientated than they are hero orientated so they've always got a reason why they're not performing yeah it's brexit it's the economy it's the pricing it's the territory it's all of those kind of reasons yeah. whereas the higher performers actually regardless of all of that they will find a way to get to where they want to get to yeah? that's fascinating um, in because do you know a key question michael and i get that's a, a great indicator on that is when people come on the phone they go how's the market yep and again it's all Top yeah. guys never ask you how the market is. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. No, they don't care. Yeah. They're going to find a job with respect of what the market is. Yeah. Completely. It, it is It is an enormous market. So, frankly, whatever happens, you know, if you are at the top of your game, you know, you will do incredibly well. So that's what that's one thing that, that frequently um, gives you a strong uh, indication. One of the other things that we found through many of the psychometrics is... What, two of the weaker areas are around um, influence and communication, and particularly communication. Right. So there seems to be a propensity for salespeople, possibly because of the way in which they're led, to be too lightning orientated. And, and what I mean by lightning orientated is, um, if you think about lightning, um, it's big, it's loud, it's fast. So they tend to make the big, loud presentation all done if the customer doesn't buy or move on. Whereas the reality in today's
today's world is you need to nurture customers uh, probably over a longer period than maybe you might have done in the past. You have to use multiple communication channels, uh, a little bit like thunder. It has to get louder. It gets quieter. It gets nearer. Um, and providing you align that to lightning, you are far more likely to get to your destination. So communication has become a far more sophisticated tool yeah. in the armor um, of, 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 of salespeople. So, so, um, so what we're finding is too many salespeople continue to hold a belief that it's about the big PowerPoint presentation, uh, take it or leave it, rather than storytelling, nurturing, gifting, uh, sending a video, sending a link, uh, building networks, introducing people, um, and a far cleverer way of getting people to where they need to get them to. Right, that's interesting okay. stuff. So Ian's got a little bit of a giveaway for us, listeners, which is, what did we reckon? Uh, free book for the first five people to email who? Ian or us? Either or. Either or. Email us yeah. uh, and, and we'll get Ian to organise a book for you. First five that come. And the first ten can have a go on the psychometric instrument. I, I don't want to email because that's taking the mickey because I might email straight away. <laughs> I'd be fascinated to see what I was because I didn't read the book. Well, I'll, t I'll tell it, you what... It made me reflect upon myself. I'll tell you what test yeah. I did do recently was Jordan Peterson's uh, test. Don't know what it is. Um, I don't know if you've done it, Ian. If you've read 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson, and, and, and followed him, that I've was a very yeah. insightful moment. Was it accurate? unnervingly and unnervingly opening and has sparked a lot of personal thought and consideration subsequently. Cool. So sometimes doing them is very good and or bad, depending on which kind of worms you fancy opening. Depends whether you want the answer, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, depending on which kind of worms you fancy opening, really. In my, yeah. in my rather complex brain, it was probably a can of worms that was best left alone um but that notwithstanding yeah so ian thank you so much for allowing us to cover the book as we said you know mike and i we, we can be pretty rambunctious about it we, we didn't like your icons but we did love the premise and the premise is bang right um is there anything that you'd like to tell us before we wrap up the show today no look i i think they're great questions um you know, we're really privileged with the feedback generally we've had on the book. I think, you know, if you have a look on Amazon.co.uk, I think actually it's exclusively five-star reviews. Uh, often from got a lot of mates. So, yeah, you know, of course we have, you know, <laughs> mothers, brothers, sisters, yeah. and all of those kind of people have done it. I'm but, hoping mine know, are going to do it when Ralph comes out. Yeah, yeah, of course. But, you know, there's some real people who've gone out there and bought the book. And paid money. Um, yeah, and paid, you know, and paid money for it. So, you know, we're very pleased with it. We've learnt from it, um, and we believe the Leader Secret Co. will be an improvement upon uh, this book, and that's going to be out in uh, in November. As I say, it's written, it's complete, it's in the final uh, editing process, and um, so I look forward to talking to you about that one as well. Well, we'd love to, we'd love you to come on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fab, yeah, and that could be good. a really great one for us to cover on our uh, on our sister podcast, Always Be Hiring. Well, I was just going through my head actually, where, where the target podcast. audience is sales leaders. Yeah. Okay. So oh, yeah, that yeah. that could be an absolutely fab one for us. Right. Well, Ian Mills, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for allowing us to cover the book. See ya. Yeah. Thank you. Time. Yeah. All right. Cheers for that. Bye.